foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. This is the Move Your DNA podcast, a show where movement science meets your everyday life. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist, author, and glasses wearer. All bodies are welcome here. Let's get moving. So I have written and talked about this before, and here I am saying it again. Your muscles are not only for moving, they also create physiological states in the body. Today we are talking myopia. That's the medical term for nearsightedness, which is being able to see up close but not far away. So I am extremely myopic, and I have been ever since I was about seven. When I was in the second grade, I got my first pair of glasses, and I really can't see more than about seven inches in front of my face without correction. Uh, When I was younger, I was one of the few people in my classroom wearing glasses, but myopia has been steadily increasing since the 1970s. So there was recently this really interesting article in The Atlantic, which is an online magazine, and the article was titled The Myopia Generation, Why Do So Many Kids Need Glasses Now? So I'm going to link to that in the show notes, and I encourage you to go read it. But I'm going to read a little snippet from it just to set up the problem that they're discussing. So here goes. In the U.S., 42% of 12 to 54-year-olds were nearsighted in the early 2000s, the last time a national survey of myopia was conducted, up from a quarter in the 1970s. Though more recent large-scale surveys are not available, when I asked eye doctors around the U.S. if they were seeing more nearsighted kids, the answers were absolutely yes, no question about it. In East and Southeast Asia, where the shift is most dramatic, the proportion of teenagers and young adults with myopia has jumped from roughly a quarter to more than 80% in just over half a century. In Europe as well, young adults are more likely to need glasses for distance vision than their parents 
or grandparents are now. But where Asia was once seen as an outlier, it's now considered a harbinger. If current trends continue, one study estimates half of the world's population will be myopic by 2050. Okay, that's the end of this portion of the article. So why is this? So the tension in the eye comes from the failure to use our eyes in their relaxed, long muscle orientation and to use them in natural light. And again, it's not really super clear what the main mechanism is now. It's hard to tease these things apart. So taking time to look at things far away, people, stuff, you know, gazing at layers of trees upon hills or waves upon the ocean, like they are all using different muscle patterns in the eye than looking at computers and books and iPhones and Kindles do. And not only are we looking at these things, a lot of the time, most of the time we're looking at them, we are also inside, right? So we've got two issues going on and it can be the complexity of both the issues going on at the same time, or it might be one more than the other. Again, it's not really, hasn't been possible to tease them apart yet. So as I have said before, and we'll say it again, natural movement, which is including this time we are spent moving our bodies outside, especially as we are growing, is is the environment our bodies require to develop well. And that doesn't only go for our musculoskeletal system. It includes how our sensory organs grow and work in the future. So in this case, I'm talking about our eyes, our eyeballs. I have written about how the rise in myopia relates to our movement habits as a society in two of my books, Movement Matters and Grow Wild. I've done entire podcast episodes about it in the years past, and I'll link to those in the show notes. But here I am again talking about why movement matters to our eyes. And it's a big deal, folks. Like, this is why I keep harping on it. And I don't think we can keep taking these issues of society not working for our bodies, for our children's bodies, sitting down. Get it? So my big issue with the article in The Atlantic was it it didn't mention any sort of solution to this large issue that it was highlighting. It focused mostly on the technology to solve the vision issue, but it made it seem like humans going outside to do something other than look at their phones was like out of the question. So again, from the article, and I know it seems like I've read you the entire article by now, but I haven't. So please go and check it out in its entirety. All right, from the article. We may not know exactly how ogling screens all day and spending so much time indoors are affecting us or which is doing more damage, but we do know that myopia is a clear consequence of living at odds with our biology. The optometrists I spoke with all said they try to push better vision habits such as limiting screen time and playing outside, but this only goes so far. Today, taking a phone away from a teenager may be no more practical than feeding a toddler a raw hunter-gatherer diet. So this is where we've ended up. For those of us who can even afford it, adding chemicals, putting pieces of plastic in our eyes every day in hopes of tricking them back to their natural state. All right, so 
this is me again. And P.S. I did feed my kids close to a hunter gatherer diet when they were toddlers, which I didn't find impractical at all. And by the way, impractical means not sensible or realistic. So I'm not quite sure what she means when she's using this term. I think when she uses the term impractical, she might mean difficult or I can't think of the alternatives, or I can't imagine what alternatives there are, or kids don't want to stop using their entertainment boxes, so what do we do? And I'm not saying that the issue is not a huge challenge, but I just don't know if practical is the most accurate word to to be used here. Anyhow, we are going to keep talking about myopia because I don't think that everyone is clear that the juvenile period of a human's life is when they are setting their adult body. And right now, the habits that we've sort of agreed to societally are not forming our adult bodies well, and human eyes are getting worse, so let's talk about it. I've enlisted some help today to help drill down more of the specifics, right? Dr. Barbara L. Reese is a doctor of optometry. Her career has ranged from contact lens research to clinical practice. While working in the contact lens industry, she developed and participated in clinical studies to design and manufacture contact lenses and care systems that worked safely and effectively. She spent the greater part of her years in clinical practice working in an ophthalmology practice where she provided vision and contact lens care and diagnosed and managed eye disease. She became a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry in 1980 and has served as chair of their admittance and governance committees. She became board certified by the American Board of Optometry in 2010 and has served as a chair of that organization. I met Barbara online, you know you know, where where you meet people now. She was a reader of my blog, and over the years, she and I have discussed the ways that movement and vision affect each other. Uh, she has been the eye muscle slash movement editor for my books. Thank you for doing that, Barbara. She is currently retired from practice and lives in Austin, Texas, and today she is coming on the Move Your DNA podcast to talk to us about eyeballs and vision and myopia. Barbara, welcome to the Move Your DNA podcast. Thank you, Katie. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit more about this Atlantic piece. What was your thought when you first read the article? Um, I thought it was really well balanced. And I thought that it presented the challenge that we're all facing in a really understandable way. I also thought that it left people not really knowing if there was anything that they could do to change the course of their children's trajectory or their own. And also, I don't remember if this was addressed or not, but it's really a huge problem in the world. It's not just a problem in the United States among school children who are growing up, but in the world, the medical consequences of long-term high myopia are are causing other problems that could be uh, held off if we were able to manage myopia during childhood, myopia development during childhood. Yeah, and I agree. And I that was that was going to be my next question, which is I do think there is the sense that myopia, nearsightedness is the is the problem. And so far, if you 
solve the problem by adding glasses or contact lenses or chemical eye drops into your eye, you have thus created a technology that makes it no longer a problem. But there are like myopia, like the shape of the eye that is related to myopia is also a shape of an eye that's related to other issues that arise later on or like the pressures within the eye. So that's what you're speaking of, right? Right. The big issue in myopia is not the vision, although obviously the vision is a problem. It can be optically corrected. It can even be surgically corrected. You've probably heard of LASIK or other types of refractive surgery, but that doesn't change the length of the eye. So as the eye elongates, there are tissues in the back of the eye that for lack of, just to kind of simplify how the eye works, and this is extremely simple. If you think of the eye as an old-fashioned camera, it's lined with film, with the retina, and that is fed by blood vessels and nerves, and that actually transmits to the brain. As the eye elongates, the retina has to stretch to accommodate that elongation. So later in life, and the higher the myopia or the more nearsighted you are, the higher the risk for changes in the periphery of the retina, where almost if you thought of it like stretch marks, which again is very simplistic, but it can lead to holes or tears, just like if you took a pair of tights and you stretched them really far and you held it that way for a long time and there's fluid in the back of the eye creating pressure, eventually you would develop holes and tears in those tights. And the same thing can happen, which can lead to retinal detachment. And and for reasons that are not completely understood, people who are very nearsighted are more at risk for developing other eye diseases like glaucoma and cataracts. Cataracts are something that you're going to get if you live long enough, but it's one of those things that you want to hold off as long as possible. The effect of the elongation of the eye, or what's called the increase in axial length of the eye, causes greater problems the greater the person's prescription is. Right. So I have a very high prescription. So my so just another way of putting that into like more concrete experience, like I, I need lots of correction to be able to see. That's what a high prescription means. I need lots of correction to be able to see. So I can expect my eye health to be poorer overall because of this situation that started for me when I was in second grade. Well, I don't know that you could make it an expectation, but it's mm-hmm. certainly a risk or a consideration. Great. That's great. That's good news for me. And I have definitely, so I feel like eye health wasn't brought into language when I was a child. My children definitely have a sense of eye health. There are things that we do to take care of our eyes in the same way many other people, like I've always had great dental care, but Mm -hmm. when I went to the dentist and I have, you know, really healthy teeth and they're like, wow, your dental health is amazing. And I'm thinking like, isn't everyone's Mm -hmm. and they're like, no, you'd be like a lot of people don't get great, not only dental care, but just even information as children to be able to take care of their teeth. Like she said, there's many people who grew up not brushing their teeth at all. That was radical for me, but then I can talk about it with eyes and see no one talked about eye health to me, but, but I have made that change. So I agree that the article did not talk about, really the medical reason we wish you be concerned about 
half the pop about this half the population of <laughs> Asian countries and a, you know, a quarter percent rise of this issue. And they also, as you said, did not really talk about what you do about it. So what do you do about it? Well, I think people have people in my world have been thinking about what to do about it for a very long time. Um, my father's an optometrist, oh. and when we were children, and I'm the oldest of four, we all wore bifocal glasses because there was a belief, and there were no randomized studies or even thinking about that then. But there was a belief that reading without any kind of help would lead a child to become nearsighted. Um, and I remember having these little red and white cat eye glasses that were like peppermint striped. And I, I'm pretty sure all four, all three of my siblings had bifocal glasses too. And so in our own little study, the result is I was nearsighted in one eye and not significantly. Um, I was nearsighted in one eye and farsighted in the other, which has served me well, actually, as an adult, because my need for glasses has been very minimal. Two of my sisters didn't need glasses till they were in their 40s, and my brother is pretty significantly nearsighted. So that that has been the thought, but it's not a clear cut. If you do this, then this will happen. The current research is a lot more sophisticated and talking, and there are medical interventions, there are more sophisticated bifocal glasses, there are bifocal contact lenses, some of which, some of the new ones have very sophisticated designs that are based in all the current research on where to cause diff different focal points and that sort of thing. The other thing, which is kind of a misconception that I want to clear up for your listeners is it's not better to undercorrect myopia. One of the stimuli to the eye elongating is blur. So if you cause blur at distance by making vision less perfect, you can stimulate more myopia, even though you think you're doing the right thing by cutting the prescription back. Mm -hmm. It's very important for people to have the right prescription so that they can see as well as possible. And what's, what that means is that the image that they are seeing is focused directly on the retina, not in front of it, not behind it. So there's no stimulation to the eye to grow because the stimulation seems to come from the eye itself. And um, so that is why you want to make sure that you have, a clear, have clear vision. So parents are in a hard place because if you're seeing that your child is becoming nearsighted, once children become nearsighted, it's very difficult to go back, if not impossible. But what you want to do is limit the growth because over a certain prescription. So you said you had a high prescription, Katie. What is your, you you've worn, you wear contact lenses, obviously. I wear contacts, obviously, but. Um, you know what the power on your box is? Negative seven on both eyes even. Okay. So negative seven is pretty high. Mm -hmm. Over negative four is where the risks of nearsightedness get greater. Um, it doesn't mean that there's no risk under negative four, but that's kind of a cutoff that we think about. It puts somebody in a more significant category. Well, is negative seven considered higher above? So, so I am not, I'm not yet to the cutoff point or am I past it? 
No, you are. So, so think of it on a number line. Okay. Uh So the center of the number line is zero. That's Mm -hmm. where we would all like to be. There's a whole world of people with plus prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Those are not the people we're talking about. Right. When I say the higher than minus, I mean that minus four is less than minus seven is, is better than minus seven. Right. Okay. So I'm in the risk. I am in the risk group. Like I just wanted to clarify. You're in the risk group, but you're not in the super high risk. Oh, as minus seven. Yeah. In minus seven, you're in the, you're in a high risk group for sure. Because you're over minus six, which is another cutoff. But here's what that means for you and for your other adult listeners. Get your eyes examined every year. Make sure that your eyes, are, your retinas are, your eyes are dilated so that you know that your retinas are healthy. Get the pressure in your eyes checked. Have someone look at your, the lens for cataracts and just do that every year. And also, if you ever get an eye injury, um, you know, you're playing Frisbee and the <clears throat> Frisbee hits you in the eye and you start seeing things in your vision, the back of the eye doesn't heal itself. Get it checked out. Mm-hmm. Even the, even if you go and get it checked out and the person says you're fine, the doctor says you're fine, and you feel like, oh, I just wasted a medical visit, you didn't because anything like that can cause problems to the retina. And changes in the retina secondary to an injury can be worse than just the normal aging changes. Okay. So the symptoms of problems with the back of the eye that would be concerning are seeing light flashes, floating spots, changes in your peripheral vision that seem weird or like a veil or a shadow. Don't ignore those. Make sure that you get those checked out as soon as you can. Okay. Even spontaneous ones. Okay. Just they they show up. Yeah. I definitely just like dental care. I think of eye care Mm -hmm. as, as a must do, you know, of, Especially because, again, I feel like my eyes are more susceptible to other things. Um, Okay, so what about we have, let's say you have children. I mean, my children obviously would, they have a higher risk of inheriting some of these genetic contributors to myopia, right? You know, just there, there are myopic genes, correct? Um, Yeah, there's not a clear understanding of what the genetics of myopia are. There's probably a lot of genes that contribute to myopia. Mm -hmm. We know for sure that if a child has two parents who are myopic, it's highly likely that they will be myopic. So in your case, a minus seven person, your myopia is probably somewhat genetic. Because when myopia is really high like that, I mean, not that you can't develop myopia that high, but generally speaking, the higher the myopia, the more likely that there's a genetic component. What what I think of is developmental myopia, and I don't even know if that's a term that's yeah. currently used, but I kind of think of it that way. It tends to stay in the under f- minus four range, meaning from zero to four, not... Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's just unfortunate that we describe myopia with a minus sign, but just think of it as the higher the number, the worse the right. <laughs> myopia. I think of it as, is it right to say that my prescription of seven inches means my focus point is like seven inches from my face? No, it's not correct to say that. It's actually, okay. it's the reciprocal of the distance in millimeters, like if your number zero, the reciprocal of zero is infinity, right? right? 
if your number is minus one, the fur- the furthest away that you could see clearly is 100 centimeters. If it's minus two, it's 50 centimeters. If it's minus three, it's 33 centimeters, roughly. And then it gets closer and closer. So just like when you take your contact lenses off, you can't hold a book you know, a foot away and still see it, you have to bring it up within a couple of inches. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's within a few inches of my face right. for sure. And so which that, interestingly enough was the position that I chose to read in before I had glasses. I was just always, <laughs> so, I like to lie in bed and read and use my face to hold the pages open. Like, I don't like, it was the epitome of like really not expending energy at all. Like, I'm going to be lying down and I'm going to wedge my face in there. And look, I don't have to use my arms either and still mm-hmm. read this book. That's very interesting. So forget <laughs> everything that I said about developmental myopia. <laughs> it's possible. Um, and what's interesting to me is that, you know, I know you're, you're one of several children, right? Mm-hmm. That no one in your family said, Katie, you might want to hold your book further away. No, no. I think that's the flip side is once you start adding a lot of children, no one really cares what you're doing at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like no, nobody's paying attention anymore. <laughs> And, 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 but it's interesting to see, you know, I have two children, they're both readers, but one is what I, I mean, they're both even voracious readers, but one has this tendency to be sucked physically into a book. And that's, that's really the, how I would say the experience is more like the relationship between me and the symbolic was so strong that I just had to get my face there. And I've got these pictures of my newborn child obsessively staring at the label inside of the car seat upon travel. And I was like, I just feel so, I mean, and I don't know, this is complete conjecture, but my understanding of what was going on as a parent and relating to this other human being that shares so much of my DNA is this kid is already trying to figure out what the symbols next to them mean. It's like coming with just like that genetically, maybe it's just coming into like, I'm here to decipher these symbols and, (laughs) and the look on the eye of just like, you know, squinting even to try to make sense of it all. Like to me, that's what reading was about, not the story, but about there's information being transmitted in the symbols that is like access to another portal of reality. And, and, and I, you know, and, and so for me as a parent, knowing that nobody came and took my book away, how I tied it to movement was it to explain, let's say, um, there's no, there's oral hygiene. We have sleep hygiene, but we don't have a word for really eye hygiene yet beyond washing your hands, you know, before you put Mm -hmm. stuff in your eye. But I mean, the idea of care is like really no eyes need these movements. And so you've been doing one set of movements for your eye. Now you have to exercise your eyes in other ways. Like we use that sort of language or also I'm going to, I want you to put the book significantly farther away. You don't have to stop reading, but we need you to exercise your eyes a little bit differently if you want to continue. And, and my myopia started, like I said, when I was seven where I was actually in glasses, couldn't see the board anymore at seven. But now my kids are 10 and 11 and they get their eyes checked regularly and no one needs glasses yet. Like we haven't seen signs of myopia, but of course we prioritize lots of movement, which means just simply perhaps movement affects the eyes in other ways of just health, you know, of blood flow and just, you know, being 
mobile, but certainly you're not reading when you're moving. You're not doing things up close when you're reading or when you're moving and you're moving outside, lots of natural sunlight and seeing if we can't at least, the way I understand myopia is as the eye is going through its growth spurt and elongating, that would be the time during growth that you would want to sort of make sure there's not a lot of restriction around the eyeball as far as the muscles in the eyes are concerned. Like I think of even, I talk about the ciliary muscles for accommodation, you know, being a band of tension that the eye is under as it's becoming larger, growing, you know, growing into an adult sized eye. What is the impact of natural light on the movement of the eye as you're, as you understand it? Um, well, it's actually very interesting, and it's been it's being studied pretty extensively right now, and probably for the past ten or fifteen years. There's certainly a correlation. You know, correlation isn't causation, but you're not going to do a randomized study where you keep a child indoors for you know right. fifteen years and right. let one go outdoors and then see what happens. So, um, but there's definitely a correlation between children who get more outdoor time um, have lower incidences of myopia. And even in Asian countries where there's rapid rapid increases in myopia during childhood, during COVID shutdown, when they were allowed to spend more time outside because they weren't in classrooms all the time, doctors saw a decrease in the, a decrease in the increase of myopia. So it, it, I want to be clear that once a child starts becoming myopic, it's very difficult to go backwards. Right. But there's still a lot of reason to try to stop from going forward. And, um, And sunlight and outdoors are definitely very important. In fact, I would say that there's, based on what I was reading about some of the research when we were preparing for this, there's definitely some indicators that light, Outdoor light itself is can stop the growth, can mm. keep it from elongating. So the things that you've been naturally doing with your children, um, you know, making sure that they have lots of outdoor time in addition to, you know, allowing them to read and also asking them to vary their distances um, at reading or, you know, I remember when, you know, when I was a child, you know, the television was the center of the family. So, you know, we would all go and sit really close to the television and my father would like come and pull us away and things like that. (laughs) So (laughs) we didn't know about outdoor time like you, but, but having grown up in, you know, in the fifties and sixties, um, we were just naturally outdoors more. We just That's had right. a life where, you know, there were four of us and my mother said, go outside and don't come back till right. dinner. We'll see you in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's a, it's very different than the world for most people today where kids spend a lot more time indoors and on screens. But your children, I can't say that your children will never become nearsighted because there's no way to predict that. But you seem to have passed the critical period with them. So it's the early, it's usually the early school years where the children who are readers start becoming nearsighted. You know, there's some predictor models, but I don't know that they would be meaningful to your listeners. Again, it's just a matter of make sure that your children have their eyes examined 
every year. And if they start becoming nearsighted, the thing that's hard is that the initial part of being nearsighted is kind of, it feels like no big deal, right? It's like, oh, you know, everyone in my family has always worn glasses. He has to wear glasses, you know, to see the board in school. No big deal. It'll be fine. And that's a very understandable way to feel, especially for those of us who wear glasses and contact lenses. It's just, it's just like, okay, well, that's just another rite of passage. I mean, I can even remember myself saying, well, you know, it's the smart kids that become nearsighted. And it is, it's the kids that do the reading. And, but now we're in a world where there's so much screen time. There's so many kids who, even if they're not readers, they're spending time with a device four inches from their face. Although I wonder if you could see a, a phone if you balanced it on your nose. Like I, you right, right, <laughs> right. Yes, no. <laughs> Just propped it up like against my forehead. Yeah, no. You could no. get like a, a little headset for it where you could just slide it right in front of your eyes, which is kind of what virtu- the virtual reality has. Oh, that's on, right. right. So virtual, what's the distance of a virtual reality screen from your eyeball? I mean, that is like the closest of all the screens, is it not? Super close. And it, and it mimics distance. So it's, you know, I don't, this is totally pie in the sky. I have no idea what it does to the accommodation system like are you focusing you're focusing on this thing that's up close but your brain perceives it as things that are far away and which of those things has a bigger impact who knows well who knows but but as i understand accommodation because the the thing that you're looking at is uh, i don't know i've never put goggles on two inches three three inches from your really close eyeball you wouldn't your ciliary muscle would have to contract to focus on that point, right? Or are you? I don't know about that because mm. I think there's something in the virtual reality itself that it creates an image that I have done it and uh-huh. it creates an image that's really far away. I mean, you can you can do virtual reality where it feels like you're standing on top of the Eiffel Tower looking out and the brain and the eye are intimately connected. So I don't know if that would create a stimulus to accommodation in the same way that letters on a page create or an image on a screen creates the stimulus um, because it's, it's complicated. Yeah, right. And, and, it's, and as much as you're right that in order for the eye to focus. So just a little backup into ocular anatomy. If you think of your eye as this sphere, which it roughly is, there's there are tissues that are inside of it. Um, maybe we should have talked about this in the beginning. I'm not Sure, you may. I like wanna. to keep everyone on t- their toes. Like we like to bury the lead. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put the stuff that they need in the middle of the episode. Just so. <laughs> um. So if you look at the eye as a sphere, um, there's a clear tissue that covers what you think of as the colored part of your eye that we call the iris. The clear tissue is called the cornea. If you wear contact lenses, that's what your contact lens sits on. And then there's fluid in between the cornea and the iris. The black spot in the middle of the iris is called the pupil, and you've noticed that your pupil can get bigger and smaller. It's actually a hole or an aperture that lets light in or lets less light in. Behind that is a lens, and it's the lens that's affected by the ciliary muscle to enable you to see 
up close when you focus. And that is a contraction of the ciliary muscle. And it's difficult to parse out all the things that cause one to become myopic because constant ciliary action can certainly cause people to become more nearsighted, as can being indoors, as can being on a screen. So we don't really know 100%, although there's tons of research going on right now, is it just the ciliary muscle? Unlikely. There seems to be some receptors in the retina also that in the, in the space of either blur or um, or lack of light will cause the eye to elongate because the message you're giving your brain is, I need to see up close. So you're, you're especially in childhood, your body is so adaptable that w- if you tell the brain, I need to see up close all the time, you're going to start developing an eye that can see up close all the time. And if you keep get, and then and you correct that vision, and then you keep holding things up close, then you're going, you're telling the brain, you didn't give me enough close, so I need more. So then the eye elongates further in order to accommodate the ability to see up close. In the beginning, when I was telling you about my situation of farsighted in one eye and nearsighted in the other, and I said, you know, that has served me well, you lose your ability to accommodate as you get older. So by the time most of us are somewhere between 45 and 50, if our vision is corrected at distance, either naturally or with glasses or contact lenses, we start needing additional help with reading because that lens inside the eye becomes harder and it it ages basically and it doesn't focus as easily. So you start needing help with reading. So for your listeners, you know, who are saying, oh, but I always wore contact lenses and now I can't see up close with them just to kind of make that clear. It's a different mechanism than what we're talking about. And there's there are always um, discussions about is the ciliary muscle becoming weaker or is it that the lens is so hard and right. um, you know I don't know how to get out of those weeds so yeah. it but we know that the lens definitely gets hard and that the ciliary muscle can't act on it in the same way that it's like it stiffer it's like stiffer like our other our other body parts like your, parts. your ciliary muscles could still theoretically have the same ability to generate strength, but it, the, the lens itself is resisting a change in shape. Right. So back to anatomy. So then behind the lens is the vitreous humor, which is a kind of a gel-like fluid that fills up the back of the eye. And behind that is the retina and the optic nerve. And the optic nerve is what communicates between the, the retina and the brain. It's very interesting. Um, do you know um, Andrew Huberman? He's, I think he's yeah, in, I was just right. listening to his, I'm listening to a podcast of his right now, actually. Well, he just put out a really, just a nice statement, which was probably in response to the same article and sort of the, the rise in discussion about myopia and its increase that's just happened here in the last couple of months, which was, you know, it's not clear if it's looking at things up close or being inside, but either way, the correction to make is clear is clear. You know what I mean? And I just appreciated that clarity, the correction, meaning that the behavioral change of we need to be going outside and moving around anymore. And to your earlier point about the, you know, if your children are already becoming myopic, which I still fully expect 
at least one of my kids to <laughs> make that transition at some point. I do not think it would be to the severity of mine. Um, and I don't think that the severity of mine is uh, genetics alone. You know, it was, you know, my genes mm-hmm. and my lifestyle put together. And so I was happy to make those changes for our family, not only for the myopia. So again, as you were saying before, the parent, you know, like we don't want to use this habit change in lieu of actual correction of myopia. Like, mm-hmm. right. It's not, it's not like, oh, I noticed we had myopia. So I'll put my kids outside to put their eye back. It, it doesn't work in that way. Yeah. But even if you start off myopia, myopic, you know, with some degree, there are so many other benefits to going outside in the light. Like it's not something that you only take once there's a problem. You know, we're sort of taking these things that we know we need and going, well, if I can't correct this problem, we're just going to stay as is, right? The the train stays on course of staying inside on the screens. There's no reason to fix it now because I guess it's the damage has already been done. But as I understand it, these are things that progress in nature. Like, and so the idea is the damage is not already done. The damage continues to happen by us staying inside and not using our bodies, including our eyes dynamically, including periods of time outside. So just to, I I know it's hard as a parent. I feel like parenting is only becoming more and more challenging as society makes these changes that make every, that make finding your basic needs uh, being met so difficult to do, right? Like it requires work to meet to meet any of your need now, like uphill salmon against the stream type of thing. It's just to remember that there is value in in doing it, and all hope is not lost. And as soon as you go outside, it's good for you. It doesn't matter about the future payoff. As soon as you go outside and move around, it's good for you. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So, <laughs> um, so I'll I'll start by saying. What I've always told patients is in almost any circumstance, which ha- including diet, exercise, outdoor time, movement, vitamins, what's good for your body is good for your eyes. What's bad for your body is bad for your eyes. Mm-hmm. And as Dr. Huberman, who, by the way, is an ophthalmologist and a oh, neuroscientist, yeah, um, as he says in, said in his podcast or post that you saw, there is no downside other than having to change habits, which I honor is very difficult. Sure. But but other than that, there's no downside to saying, look, after dinner, we're going to take a walk. Um, you know, in the morning, we're going to park a mile from school and walk to school together. So we have to leave the house at seven instead of 730. Is that difficult from an emotional time, you know, parent relationship thing absolutely but it there's no but there's no downside to it it's like the art the thing about can you does chicken soup cure the common cold you know it's the old yiddish joke does chicken soup kill cure the common cold no but it couldn't hurt so there so you're not going to cure myopia that way but you're going to develop better health habits in your family which to me is even more important. There are modalities for attempting to reduce myopia, and we can talk about those if you Mm -hmm. like, um, that, you know, if you want to get into more technical stuff. But I want to say that what with, with all respect to what parents are going through right now, I actually think the problem is that it's that 
it used to be that we had to do hard things in order to live. Like we had to chop our own wood. We had to grow our own food. We had to walk a mile to the store because even in car times, you know, the person, the breadwinner had the car. So the person who took care of the house had to make sure that there was food in the house and you had to do that outdoors. We had chores because, you know, you had a cow to milk or eggs to gather or whatever. And now all of those things are very easily gotten. I mean, I would, you could never have to leave your house as we found out for, during COVID, right? You could, I could, I could lay on my side and just, just, you know, with my nose, tap my phone <laughs> six, three inches from my face and get it to show up at my door. Like we, exactly. we, we have gone from needing to do hard things to having hard things done quite easily without much right. labor or movement. And that's how our children have grown up. So our children are growing up in a world where everything is Every, I'm going to say that everything is very easy, but it's not. Yeah, it's not. That's because what happens is when you say to your child, as I have to mine, the school is only a half a mile away, um, if you, and you have to be there at 6.30 in the morning for a chorus, I really think that you can walk to school. It's not that far. Um, you know, you have a difficult situation on your hands, and you multiply that by more children and more circumstances, and it becomes a parenting, a parent-child issue. So, I think that the fact that you, from the very beginning, I think of your children's lives, were committed to this outdoor life and more movement, um, and maybe not even as much as you are today, because I did see your videos of when you were pregnant. So <laughs> I know yeah. that you've, I know how you've transitioned over the years, um, but you also live in this beautiful place where it's wonderful to be outdoors and you've created that as part of your own family community. Um, and by doing so, you know, I have no idea, but I'm hoping that it's not so much of a fight, like th that your children have a sense that my life has increased value because I'm able to spend so much time outdoors. Well, I don't even think they probably really think about it that way. It's just the life that they know. And me being, I would say sort of, as we've sort of already defined a kind of a lazy creature by, by <laughs> nature, I found that a lot of what we're talking about is, is the, is the battle. Like, I mean, I think of everything as having an inertia and having to deal with other people's inertia and trying to get everyone to move in the same direction is really challenging. And I think just earlier on, what I realized was I need to create a home where I don't have to deal with inertia, right? Mm -hmm. So I get rid of the chairs, you know, I have to create uh, an expectation or at least a habit where, where the inertia takes care of it. So in this way, I am still lazy. I'm just trying to leverage <laughs> our tendency to continue to do the same thing. I don't think of it as a setting it up, setting up good habits. It's just more like removing the infrastructure. It's about taking away purchased things, buying less, spending less money, you know? So it's, it's actually, even though it sounds like it would be more expensive, it's the less expensive version of, of getting rid of the things that are hurdles to some of those very primal foundational things we needed, like to be able to go outside and take a walk without it being a major epic battle every single time. And so I, I know that I am fortunate in that because I started so early, it's easier. It would be, I don't even know how I would 
transition a 12 year old and a 14 year old hearing about this and, you know, figuring out how to, I, it doesn't mean that I don't still try to think about it all the time. And I don't have areas of my life where we're working on this, but I do know that starting earlier is, is easier. Yeah. And you also have a life where you're able to do that. You don't, sure. you and your husband don't commute to Seattle for work every day That's right. and things like that. Well, the fact that we even have two parents, I mean, there's two parents, right. you know, like there's, there's many privileges that go into making it so much easier. And I, mm-hmm. I very much understand that. And at the same time, I can see that as you were talking about, these benefits are often found in places that don't, that don't have so much right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just like so many things of so many of those traditional health things that were so common 50 years ago that everyone had equal access to without even trying. It was just sort of the way things were. Now they're more of a choice and to be able to make that choice to do some of those things is harder. Oh, for sure. And, but I, you know, when you were saying that, I was just thinking about the things that we do with our kids to make sure that they have access to the same things as everyone in their peer group are the things that make it harder to get them outdoors or to get them to move more. So you're right. I mean, in areas where everyone can't afford an iPad, um, you know, the kids get together and walk to the library and go and look at the, do their homework, you know, on their computer at the library or Although now I think they're giving everybody Chromebooks, so forget I said that. Well, now, well, now they're trying to, you know, and it's challenging. You know, you're trying to make give equal access to all the things that everyone has, which means that there is a greater right. It allows some of the problems that come with the access to those things to spread more often mm-hmm. as well. You know, right? But um, you know, to your point, so if you live in a community that it's not safe for the kids to go outside, sure. then you know, we can sit here and talk about how important outdoor life, outdoor light is from now until Friday. But if I'm, if I'm sitting at my office and I'm terrified that something's going to happen to my child, if I let them leave the house, then, you know, I can't, you know, I have to go to work. I can't say to the child, go and play basketball because it could be dangerous. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, we live in, a, in really challenging times. Yeah. It is definitely a societal structure. You know what I mean? I, 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 these aren't parenting fails. These are, it, it's, it really has more to do with the collective way society has shaped itself. And it's interesting because there is a relationship between culture and biology. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, culture shifts biology, what that would look like in terms of, of the eye, you know, what will the eyes of the future be, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just, well, uh, I think we're seeing it. Well, that's right. Um, Are we though? It sounds like we're, we're it's blurry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about, um, well, the, the Atlantic article was really about how much money was going into the technology of eye care now that myopia was rising. And like, there's this relationship between sort of getting the best eye care now. And it's very similar. She brings up the relationship, too, between dentistry as something we all need more of. Like you think you would think of as, as we become more as we progress down time and technology that we would become better physically, but many of the benefits have come with 
detriments. Teeth is one of them where, you know, because of the diet and the lack of chewing, like now there's a lot more dental work that goes into making healthy teeth when healthy teeth would occur more naturally without so much of the progress that's happened. And so she likens it to the eyes as well. This is sort of a, again, an evolutionary mismatch. Our eyes don't do well in the environments that we are currently placing them. So there's all this new technology that's developed to deal with the mismatch of this not being a great environment for eyeballs in general now. So one of the things that she was mentioning, and I had read this also, was eyeglasses in a drop, right? Eye, eye drops that uh, that essentially are, are you know, um, providing some sort of daily change that would mimic what normally glasses would do. What do you think about those? It's not exactly eyeglasses in a drop. So that's, rolling, where, that's right. Okay, sorry. That's my take on it. Okay. Okay. I mean, there is something like that, but it's more for presbyopia, which is the aging change that happens to Mm. the eye. And I think when you and I met last month, we were talking about that a little bit. But if we stay with myopia, there have been many studies lately about using a drop called atropine in the eye to manage myopia. And I'm, I'm going to start using the word manage because that's, I, that seems to be what the profession is using. In fact, there's an academy of uh, myopia management that people can get board certified in so that they can start adopting all these new techniques and demonstrate that they're doing it in an appropriate way. But um, the drop, what, how the drop atropine works is it stops the normal functioning of the muscle that we talked about, the ciliary body, and also of the pupil. This is very simplistic for anyone technical listening to this. Um, so that the ciliary body cannot, um, cannot focus at all. And the pupil is very, very large. So in full strength atropine, 1% atropine, which there were studies on probably 50 years ago, on children becoming myopic, because really optometrists and ophthalmologists were concerned about myopia forever. You know, can, mm-hmm. is this something that we can stop? Just like my dad giving us bifocals <laughs> when we were little. If you par- basically paralyze the internal workings of the eye, which is what atropine does, you will not, you will be able to reduce the progression of myopia. The problem with that is that you then have a person who cannot focus up close and and is extremely sensitive to light because, you know, enormous quantities of light are getting into their eye because the pupil can't constrict in response to light. So what the researchers did was they started titrating down atropine to lower and lower concentrations to see if there was like a sweet spot where Mm -hmm. you could administer the drug. Um, it would have the appropriate effect and not have the disconcerting side effects. And somewhere between one one hundredth of a percent and five one hundredths of a percent seems to be um, what people are using right now. And especially in children who are progressing rapidly, it does seem to help. The, and some some parents use it in the winter when their kids are not outside so much and then use it less in the summer because it can still have a little bit of a pupillary dilation effect, but it doesn't have anywhere near the effect that full strength does. And yet 
the, the effect it has on the ciliary body, whatever that is contributing to the increase in myopia, it does seem to slow down myopia. Now, once it's stopped, there is a rebound effect. Um, and atropine or derivatives of atropine, I think, have been used in Asian, Asian countries for, um, for some time. Um, I could be wrong about that. I might be thinking about orthokeratology, which is the contact lens that we can talk about too. Mm-hmm. But um, that is one modality. And, you know, it's something that parents have to decide if that is what they want with their children. But if the child is progressing rapidly, and that would mean that they need glasses changes every three, six months in order to see um, clearly or, you know, or there's huge jumps every year. It just, you know, it depends. Um, it might be something worth considering or at least talking to your optometrist about. It's It would be used off-label because um, I, I don't know if you know what off-label means. I do, um, but, when, but you can explain it to everyone. The FDA approves a drug. They approve it for a specific indication. So right now, 1% atropine is approved for people, for children with amblyopia, which is where one eye didn't fully develop vision either because there's a big prescription difference or because the eye turns. And by putting atropine in the functioning, uh, in the eye that is seeing well, you can force the other eye to work. So it's kind of a liquid eye patch in a way. It doesn't prevent the other eye from seeing, and it's not physically disfiguring like wearing a patch all the time is, but it does. It is used to force the eye to work. So off-label means that um, people are using this drug for other things, which is to try to manage myopia. Um, and the lower percentages of the drop have to be compounded, especially by a pharmacy. They're not available commercially. So all those are potential hurdles, I guess, is what I'm saying. And you know, there's the potential hurdle of you know, putting drops in your child's eye every night and atropine can have some pretty significant effects systemically if you, if it's taken in high doses, but the studies haven't shown any long-term effects. But parents are going to be concerned about any substance that they put in their child's body. So there's those concerns that have to be addressed as well. But it is a modality that is being used to try to manage myopia. The other one that I was talking about um, was, it's called orthokeratology. And it also has been around for a long time in different forms. But the form that's being used right now is, ortho, in orthokeratology, you use a rigid contact lens. The rigid contact lens is made of a material that's very oxygen permeable, so that even though there's a layer between the eyelid and the eye, oxygen can pass through it. And the child wears it at night, much mm-hmm. like, you know, braces. And what it does is it it essentially flattens the cornea. Remember, we talked about the cornea being mm-hmm. the tissue that the contact lens sits on. And when the child takes the contact lens off in the morning, or the parent takes the contact lens off the child in the morning, depending, the child can see for pretty much the rest of the day. So you're managing vision in a way that you're putting this modality in, it's correcting the vision, it's a temporary correction. And it again works well 
And there's lots of barriers. Will your child tolerate the contact lens? Do you want to put a contact lens on your child every night? It's expensive. It requires a lot of lots of maintenance. Like there's changes in the lenses. There's you know a lot of visits. Um, there's some risk of eye infection. Although if hygiene is well managed, that's really manageable. And again, it's a modality that when children do it, they like it because during the day when they're at school and they're doing their activities, they don't have to wear glasses in order to see. And once it's discontinued, there is rebound. So it's, again, not a permanent solution, but it is another way of managing myopia. And some of the newer people are using um, multifocal soft contact lenses that are available in daily disposable. So you can use them once and throw them away, which is a very hygienic way to wear contact lenses. And those are seem to have some effect on reducing the progression of myopia. And again, I just want to be clear, we're just redu- we're trying to reduce progression. We're not trying to cure. Reversing, um, right. There's, there's not a cure. And there's a new design that uses optics in a way that changes the peripheral image on the retina relative to the central image, um, which is in line with a lot of animal research of how um, myopia develops. And in the studies anyway, that particular lens has worked really well. I think it was just FDA approved, but don't hold me to that. It's called MySight. And again, this is another thing just for your for your listeners to just talk to their optometrists about and find out what they recommend to try to limit or reduce the progression of myopia. But there's absolutely no downside to saying get outside and move more. None. Yeah, that, that's that's for myopia and beyond. Right. But it's nice to it's nice to have a little bit of it is nice to have a little bit of both. I mean, what when I was thinking about the benefits of wearing a contact lens at night to sort of get a temporary reshape of the cornea so that you don't have to wear glasses. Like I do think that wearing glasses from age seven was a a big deterrent to me moving Mm -hmm. for so long. You know, it's very, and, and again, this is during a time when, you know, only the, the nerdy kids (laughs) had glasses. And so then it sort of reinforces the, you don't know how to use your body very well. You're like more in your head. I'm like, well, I have these one pound glasses on Mm -hmm. my face. And, you know, if I take a ball to the face, it breaks my glasses or, or hurts my, I, I have such, such, um, heavily corrected vision that if I just happen to see over it, I instantly lose my balance. Right. So, so there are, there are things like, I just think of, because this is a podcast about movement thinking about the impact on someone's overall ability to move and feel comfortable that doesn't relate necessarily directly to myopia, but to the correction of needing to wear glasses at such a young age. Like it definitely affected my teenage years and my ability to develop, you know, athletic skills and robust movement because of glasses, right? So like, I think that that just, you know, this isn't a podcast about me and my <laughs> psychological issues, but, 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 but I do think that, but it also is. <laughs> and, and so like everything that I do, I do think that one of my interests 
just like anything as a child, when we have our own kids, we're like, man, I want to do this better than it was done Mm -hmm. for me. I think vision was one of those things because I don't think I would be here today. So obsessed with movement and, and the barriers to it along the way, if I hadn't been sort of like, I feel almost robbed of my ability to move as a child, Mm -hmm. Um, even though it wasn't done on purpose and it wasn't, it, you know, these aren't conscious choices. Like everyone's just trying to do what they are doing, but I think knowledge is definitely power. And in this case, you know, I'm having you on today just so people can be thinking about some of these things, you know, and that they have greater impact. Well, is there anything else you want to tell us about myopia or you feel free to respond to that? <laughs> well, I was going to, um, what I was going to say was it's also a safety issue. So you probably, if you don't have your contact lenses on, you probably need your glasses next to the bed to get around the house at night. And people don't feel safe. If if you're a person living alone and you hear a noise and you can't see, it, it's a safety issue. So it's another sure. argument for, you know, managing it so that not only can you move, but you can move safely and comfortably. What I was going to ask you was how old were you when you started wearing contact lenses? 12, 13. Yeah, that's, so that in the world of now, that's old. And when you were, if, if you were seven now, you would have been able to wear contact lenses now um, that you could throw soft lenses that were comfortable that you could throw away every day. And now there are soft lenses that have a multifocal built into them that mm. will take away some of the excess focusing that you do up close when you wear contact lenses, because that's one of the challenges when children start wearing contact lenses is now their vision is corrected for distance, but yet they're still doing the same work in front of the screen or in front of the book. So now they're giving their eye inf- more information to say, grow longer, because you know now my vision's corrected for distance, but I still need to be up close. Contact lenses are freeing and they're wonderful. And if an eight-year-old can wear contact lenses, and some can and some can't, but if an eight-year-old can wear contact lenses, like my my 11-year-old granddaughter is a dancer, and the day she got contact lenses was like the happiest day of her life. But I do tell her, please take them off to read. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's just how that goes. But when you have that freedom, then you have the freedom to move, and then you have the freedom to be outside. So it could could change the calculus. You know, I'm not going to spend eight hours a day reading because it's so fun to be outside and, you know, my world is big. You know, the other thing about your prescription, Katie, is also that everything is constricted. Like if for parents that they don't wear glasses, like put your kids' glasses on, everything gets smaller and closer and the edges are somewhat Mm -hmm. distorted. It's very challenging to then go out and, you know, play football um, or, you know, even run a track or something, you know, your glasses are sliding off and you're sweaty and things like that. So at the very least, um, yes, parents should be thinking about it. Definitely get kids outside more and get more light. Everybody should. And consider contact lenses that and talk to the practitioner about multifocal contact lenses, because those are readily available on the market today. And just try, do everything you can to try 
it's recognizing that it's really hard to change those habits, but contact lenses are very freeing and there are contact lenses that can help. And then if you're an adult and you're already nearsighted, just get your eyes examined every year and don't ignore any symptoms that seem strange to you. The eye will not heal itself. You do have to get any changes checked out and make sure that you're not developing a problem that's serious. And I love your other point, which is if it's good for your body, it's good for your eyes. So just more motivation to make those other changes that we know um, are good for our eyes. Like I think of humans as very, um, we're, we're, I mean, we're all animals are sensory dependent, but vision is such a dominant sense for us, you know, to really, it's, it's what, it's the same thing with foot pain. You just don't think it's going to be a problem until it is. So just take good care of your eyes. <laughs> and that just means take good care of your body, mm-hmm. you know, right? It's, it's the same thing. So prioritize that change. I know that changes are hard. It's not to diminish the effort it takes, but that it is worth it. You know, it's worth it. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. That was great. So thanks to Barbara for coming on and thanks to everyone for listening. And can we just take a minute to celebrate podcasts as a thing? So I'm a huge lover of books and reading, but I have found that listening is easier on my eyes. And humans are great storytellers and And again, storytelling and that oral tradition is so tied up with our humanity. And so perhaps our transition to podcasting and audiobooks provides a better environment for our body. This is just, you know, something to think about. And if you like audiobooks and you want to hear more about myopia and long distance vision and the importance of natural light, check out my two books. First, a book of essays about natural movement, alignment, movement science, and sedentary culture called Movement Matters. You can listen to it. And of course, if you want a new approach to getting kids outside more often, moving, learning how to be in green spaces, letting those green spaces shape their bodies well, my book Grow Wild is also available on audiobook via my website, Audible, or any place you get your audiobooks, including the library. And with that, I'm going to take myself and my eyeballs outside. See you later. Get it? See you. All right. Bye. Hi, my name is Summer Teixeira from Maui, Hawaii. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully, you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. Our theme music was performed by Dan McCormick. This podcast is produced by Brock Armstrong, and the transcripts are done by Annette Yen. Find out more about Katie, her books, and her movement programs at nutritiousmovement.com.